Hello and welcome to Between the Gutters, the comics podcast where we talk about the stories within the panels. I'm your host, Drew, and with me, as always, is our other host, Albert. Yo, yo, what to do, what to do? What's happening, all you good people? So today, <laughs> we are... <laughs> I figure if they're listening to us, they have to be good, right? Well, I think metatextually, I was just laughing at the fact that we've we've had this ongoing... I wouldn't say an argument, but just this ongoing thing where we try to figure out whether we're going to try to name the people that listen to our uh, podcast uh, some sort of artificial uh, uh, signifier so that they, you know, so that we can try to build up some sense of community uh, or whether we're just going to not do it. So hearing that, <laughs> that kind of like middle ground doesn't it? say that again. It feels like I've capitulated to your desire not to call <laughs> our listeners in-betweeners. For a while, you were calling people gutter trash. Yeah, but that was that was tongue-in-cheek. I wasn't doing that out of any sense of sincerity. I was being tongue-in-cheek also, man. Yeah. Where are you, though? I was, man. Cross okay. my heart. Hope to die. Okay. All right. I'll, I'll have to take you at your word for that. And you being a man of dignity and honor, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna believe you. I'm Thank gonna you, believe sir. that this is true. I appreciate that. Appreciate that. Yes. What you got? But, yeah. So today we are continuing our year-long read-through through the series Mobile Suit Gundam: The Origin by Yoshikazu Yasuhiko. So if you want to get caught up, we're only on volume two right now. And we covered Volume 1, which was our introductory episode to the series, back in Episode 111. So I recommend maybe listening to that episode if you want a little bit of the context and the background behind the series. Uh, hopefully you've also been reading along. But if not, uh, we'll try to uh, keep things coherent uh, this time around. We'll try to do a little bit of a recap and, and plot summary, just so uh, in case you haven't been able to get your hands on the book for whatever reason, uh, hopefully our discussion will still make sense and maybe even entice you to pick up a copy on your own. Sounds good. Sounds good. Yep. So today uh, we're covering Volume 2 of The Origin, which is also subtitled Garma. It's written and drawn, of course, by the great Yoshikazu Yasuhiko, translated by Melissa Tanaka, and published by Vertical. So, Albert, before we go too deep into volume two, do you still remember what happened at the end of volume one, or would you be able to give the good people who listen to us <laughs> a brief recap of volume one? Uh, I can try, uh, but yeah, I don't, I, my memory isn't probably anywhere near as, uh, as honed or developed as yours. So there's, there's a chance that there's going to be some gaps there, but per my understanding of what happened in the last book, and in the last book, we established that there are these, there's 
a, a far-reaching and expansive space civil, civilization, but there are fractures within it as um, as people in the outer colonies decide that they want freedom and uh, to remove the yoke of tyranny from the Federation. And what we see is a series of uh, escalating back and forths between the two um, opposing forces uh, with Char and the uh uh the empire of zeon on one side and uh, the federation on the other side and the various characters and uh heroes well i don't even know if they're i, I guess they're <laughs> heroes <laughs> uh on on the side of the federation and when last we met uh i believe or the last thing that we were reading was about them coming to Earth. Mm-hmm. Earth. Welcome to Earth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, as soon Will. as they landed, uh, Amro got out of the Gundam and Will Smith punched him in the face. Yeah. And he was just like, welcome to Earth. <laughs> <laughs> but, man, that would have been a heck of a way for that book to end. <laughs> uh, but what ends up happening is... Uh, yeah, there's, uh, there's several back and forths as, uh, as they, as the, the victor of the conflicts switches, switches hands, uh, between the Federation and the, and Xeon, Mm -hmm. but, uh, I believe towards the end, the Federation was headed towards Earth and, they basically had a bunch of refugees and they were just kind of on their last legs. Whereas mm-hmm. Zeon had struck at the heart of the beast, which was earth itself and were making their attack. Am I remember remembering that right? Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's how uh volume one ends in pretty dramatic fashion from what yeah. I recall as the white base arrives on earth. Yeah. Yeah. How do we, how did, uh, let, should we try to go into how volume two starts off or was there some, some things you wanted to try to. Well, did you have discuss? any general thoughts on volume two, your general impressions? Uh, I guess, I guess, first of all, maybe I should ask, did you even enjoy what you read? I'm invested in it. I think there's, there's definitely intrigue and drama to watching these two opposing forces as they try to res- uh, as they try to gain dominance over their adversary. So there's there's this element of it that's like a cat and mouse game. And you know, I guess okay, so I, I, I feel like I should establish or or ask this first, but yeah. My understanding of the book is that the Federation are the protagonist right like it's fair to say that the federation is the protagonist i would say amaro yeah probably the protagonist okay and he happens to be fighting on the side of the federation okay there we go so you're right so amaro is 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 the protagonist the hero of the story he's he's kind of the 
uh, point of view character that we follow. And I think it's safe to assume that that means that you're supposed to... To root for him? Yeah, I guess. I mean, uh, although... You know, maybe you don't have to root for him. I don't know. Like, I think there's I, actually quite a few people in the fandom who who root for Shar. I think so too. That's. I think it's that knowledge that throws me off, especially as someone who's coming into this as a completely new property. Yeah. Uh, as something. Yeah, that we I've should never probably uh, clarify that to any of our listeners out there. So, you're you're fairly new to. Gundam yeah. in general, and definitely yeah. new to the origin. Exactly. Uh, exactly. I'm I'm kind of a I haven't watched every single Gundam, but I'm I definitely would consider myself a Gundam fan, and I've yeah. read the entire series, the origin before, and I have a lot of love for the Universal Century timeline. So, I, of the two of us, I'm the one who's more in tune with. You what's got going your hand in the guts, son. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So I'm over here and. It's it's all very fresh to me, and I think having all this knowledge, uh, all this meta knowledge of of things that surround this series, mm-hmm. it's it's the kind of thing that makes me, uh, it it, it alters my perception of of my, of my reading of it, you know. Mm. So instinctively, I read this when I'm reading this book. I feel like Amaro's you know, he's the man, right? So he's the mm-hmm. dude. So I feel like it should make sense that I should be rooting for him and for his side to win. But, you know, ever since we've, we've had conversations outside of this podcast where, uh, you you know, you've told me about how, like like you just said, there there are quite a few people who actually root for Char because he's this breakout character from the series, mm-hmm. you know? And it's just... Uh, yeah, it, it it forces me to rethink my reading of it, but I, I, you know, maybe I'm just a square. Maybe there's something I'm not getting. I don't know. But what what are your thoughts on Shar? Is it uh, just do you just feel weird rooting for him because the side that he's on dresses like fascists? <laughs> I wouldn't even say that. Like I I feel like it's pretty straightforward reading this that he's not the guy to root for, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. E- even though their uh, their objective is essentially like freedom or whatever. Like if you just boil it down to its mm-hmm. essential independence. Yeah, yeah. To their to to an essential point, that's what it is. But it's a war for independence. Yeah, but just the way that the story is set up, like it feels like you're invested in the side of the federation of amuro and of his colleagues you mm-hmm. know so mm-hmm. it's just i guess it's jarring for me to read this and even i'd say even the way that char is portrayed he's not he's not traditionally or classically heroic or anything like maybe he's kind of cool and Maybe there's a sense of elegance and menace to him, but mm-hmm. he's not, you know, he's not a good dude. He's not really portrayed as a hero. Yeah, especially you know? when you see what he does by the end of this volume. Yeah, 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 exactly. That, 
the I feel like uh, betraying your friend isn't something that heroes do. I mean, like yeah, if we got to yeah. the end of this podcast <laughs> and it turned out that you like poisoned me and killed me, I would feel like, yeah, I guess Albert's not really a good guy after all. <laughs> but Drew, it was Agatha all along. <laughs> so I can blame her, not you. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, it, it just, he just doesn't, I, I don't feel like he fits the classic archetype of your traditional hero character. Yeah, I think most people understand that Shar is not a hero, but I think yeah. people just like him because of that cool factor. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's not like it's not a phenomena that I haven't seen before. Um, you know, something like the Punisher is an example, right? There's yeah. People root for him, and I guess he's the hero, but maybe it's the opposite effect there, where if you really step back and think about it, the guy's a monster. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. But anyways, yeah. And so that's that was that's something that I'm constantly having to try to reconcile in my reading of this. Uh what was your original question again, Drew? Uh oh, whether I actually liked this volume or what my, mm -hmm. my thoughts on it were. Mm -hmm. Um I will say that I'm I'm invested in this ongoing uh tug of war uh, between these two opposing forces but there's a part of me that that is kind of thinking as the story progresses i i know that there are going to there are at least 10 more volumes of this yeah and i wonder if it's just going to be like this throughout the entire series cuz by be like this what what specifically do you mean because uh, it just really feels like it's just a string of battles back and forth. And I'm not opposed to that, but maybe, I don't know, maybe I need something a little more. Because uh, it really just feels like it's just this, between Volume 1 and Volume 2, There, there's a little bit of, no, not a little bit, there's definitely storyline progression, but... Mm -hmm. The majority of it does feel like it's just, oh, the Federation is going to do something, and now we're going to take the initiative, and we're going to be in a position where it looks like we're going to win. But then something happens, and then now it feels like Zeon is going to win, and we're going to tell you know read the story for a little while from that perspective where they're king of the hill up until the next thing that happens, and... You know, it just feels like it's just this constant back and forth between these two uh, in, in just one long battle, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, to some extent, that's understandable because this is, this period in the Gundam lore is known as the One-Year War. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And by the time this story starts... The war basically starts at the beginning of 0079, and I think by the time we pick up with Amuro and everything that happened in Volume 1, I want to say it's it's probably around August or September. I don't know the exact date, I'm sure, but you know, Gundam is one of those fandoms where people come up with detailed, precise 
information for just about every little thing. So I think if you really uh, search for it, you could find that exact information. Like but, a timeline or something? Yeah, like a precise <laughs> yeah. timeline. But I, I believe we're in about August or September uh, of 0079. And, mm. you know, for a conflict called the One Year War, uh, you know, we're about like eight or nine months into that year. So it's it's really towards like the latter half of the war when the Gundam is introduced. And I will say uh, one thing I thought was interesting that you said earlier when you were describing your view of the series as a game of cat and mouse between the Federation and Xeon, it made me think who was the cat and who was the mouse? Because like, when the story starts, it definitely feels like Xeon is the cat mm, mm. and the Federation are the mice, especially, uh, you know, if, if you want to get more specific, you would say, we could say that Shar uh, is the cat and White Base is the mouse. Yeah. yeah. And and yet, by the time we get to the end of volume two, it kind of feels like that sort of flipped around, you know? Like, maybe maybe not on the wider scale of the overall war, but at least between White Base and the people, the Zeons that are pursuing White Base, it kind of feels like that table was flipped around. Yeah. But I thought that was that was interesting. But as far as an entire series uh, of battles, there's definitely going to be battles just because they're embroiled in a in a conflict. Yeah. But I I do think that there are a lot of moments that are character building and display a lot of the human drama. Because I think one of the things about Gundam that makes it so fascinating to me is is that most people think of Gundam as just a story about giant robots, which it is. Uh, and mm-hmm. obviously the giant robots definitely add to the entertainment and the excitement of it. But at its core, it's still more of a human drama than than anything else. You know, like I don't think that yeah. this story would work if it was just a bunch of robots pounding each other to dust, you know, every every other chapter. I feel like we see a little bit of those character bits in in this volume as well. Not only with Amuro, like that that whole sequence where he's looking for his mom, but even with Shar and the interactions he has with Garma. So hopefully things like that are enough to to break the monotony of endless battles for you. Okay, with that said, let's go ahead and dive into volume two. I guess I'll give a recap of the different chapters and you can feel free to interject with any thoughts or commentary that you might have. Sounds good. So in chapter one, or as the book calls it, section one, White Base makes it to Earth, landing somewhere east of Los Angeles and gets ready to begin the journey to Jabro, which is in South America. Garma Zabi, the titular Garma of volume two, he is the youngest scion of the Zabi family, and he's also the military commander of Zeon's forces on the west coast of North America. Now, Shar links with Garma to continue their pursuit of White Base and the Gundam. And on White Base, we see that Amro feels depressed and scared. He's just kind of lying in bed, not really wanting to do anything. Fraubo goes to try and cheer him up to no avail. And when White Base is under attack, 
Amro can't rouse himself to action, and Bright himself goes to Amro to literally slap some sense in him. It's a, actually kind of a funny and famous scene in in Gundam. It's it's one of those things that uh, has become a meme in in the fandom. Maybe not even just Gundam fandom, but anime fandom. This just the scene of Bright slapping Amro. Mm. It's it's also kind of funny when you think about how many times people get slapped uh in in Gundam. I mean even mm. in volume 1 there was that scene right after um after Frau Bo her uh, mother and her grandfather and all those refugees get caught up in, in an explosion and they all die and Amro uh tries to tell her to to run to safety to the to white base and she's just crying in in emotional shock and he's he tries to slap her to like wake her <laughs> up <laughs> snap at it <laughs> pretty much yeah yeah so bright does the same thing to amuro in chapter one and then finally after a little bit more prodding from frau amuro gets up and and gets ready for battle and and that's how that chapter ends right so let me ask you a question here, Albert. Um, and I'm wondering if this was a question that crossed your mind at all while you were reading it. But we we discussed how Zeon, the Principality of Zeon, is a movement that started on a space colony, t- specifically Side 3, which is at the Lagrange point farthest from Earth. Mm-hmm. And they're fighting a, a war for independence against the Federation. So did it? Did you think it was strange that Zeon had such a large force on Earth? Uh, if I had to be perfectly honest, it took me by surprise. I mean, I know that I know that we just talked about how they were there on Earth, but I remember as I was reading it, there was a part of me that was like, "Wait, when did that happen?" Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. So, but you know, it's just. One of those situations where I guess I just told myself maybe maybe I missed something or whatever, but I, I guess that's what the story is, you know? I guess that's where we are, so I just had to adjust to the situation as I was reading it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Why? Is there some uh, contextual information that you could offer there that might clarify that for me? I can give you a little bit of information. I I don't know if this is explicitly in the text, but just from what I know about the history of the one year war, <laughs> it feels weird. Like I'm talking about some fictional event, like it's a <laughs> like it's like, real. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, whatever. We have a comics podcast, so yeah, we're already uh knee deep into all sorts of crazy fiction. But anyway, the the backstory is that Zeon, the reason why Zeon basically has an upper hand in the war is because their technology was superior. Like they were the ones who developed the mobile suits first. And mobile suits, for whatever reason, in this story, they're they're just the dominant uh, form of technology in in, in modern warfare. So, you, I would you, imagine that a giant robot suit that can crush a bunch of soldiers would be mm-hmm. a game changer in any warlike situation. 
Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> I wonder what it is about these things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Xeon developed their mobile suits first, and one of the reasons why uh, they're so intent to capture or destroy the Gundam is because the Gundam is kind of the Federation's real breakthrough. I mean, we've seen that they've got a few other mobile suit. Yeah. Uh, already like they have the the gun cannon that thing that kai pilots that has the two cannons on its shoulders and then there's also the gun tank which is basically like a the top half of a robot on top of tank treads yeah 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 but uh essentially the the zeon's mo- zeon's mobile suits uh have just been more effective and it wasn't until the Gundam that the Federation made a breakthrough in technology with something that clearly outclassed the Zaku. Could I ask something? Mm-hmm. So that information that you told us about how they were the first ones to develop the uh, the mobile the suit m- mobile suit technology was was that something that they had put into the books? Like, was that something I missed? I don't think it was in volume one or volume two. Okay. From what I remember, there is a little bit of that. Uh, there's like s- some flashbacks in upcoming volumes. Okay. That that give you a little bit of that backstory. Okay. And I'm also just telling you stuff from my general knowledge, having watched a bunch of Gundam. Okay. All right. That that changes a lot, you know, because. I guess the way that we're accustomed to viewing these types of stories is that the guys that are fighting for freedom tend to be the underdog, the, the underdog. Exactly. Right. So mm-hmm. rarely it is a pretty interesting uh, shift in dynamics to have them be the overpowered ones in the situation. Right. It, yeah. it almost it almost makes the story almost paints the story. It almost paints it in a way that it's like more like a coup than it is mm-hmm. a, a a rebellion or a a fight for their freedom, mm-hmm. you know? Because I I guess you could say that their Zeon is going on the attack aggressively, and, and you know, usually in the in the case where you have freedom fighters, they're just content to have whatever territory they have and to expel the people that are oppressing them. Yeah. So, Yeah, I think the thing with Zeon is that not all of the space colonies are part of Zeon. Only uh, side three, and I think maybe there might be another side that's part of Zeon, but essentially a bunch of the other colonies are neutral or -hmm. trying to stay out of the fighting. Mm-hmm. And Earth, the Federation, is really where uh, Zeon has its enmity. So uh, I, th- I think it would be, I think it would be accurate to say that the Federation, at the beginning of the war, I think the Federation had more people and more materials. Like they they outnumbered Zeon, but Zeon had the, the technology. And if you Look at the the intro to the to the book, and this was in the beginning of Volume One as well. But there's just that couple pages of uh, 
like backstory of the one year war where you see a space colony being dropped on earth mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so like the reason why so many people were wiped out was was because Xeon wasn't really holding back anything when they were attacking Earth. I mean, they they dropped they a gigantic went, cylinder yeah. colony on populated cities. You know, like they were they were doing things that are basically uh, war crimes. War crimes, exactly. Yeah. So uh, because of that, the the Federation was completely taken by surprise and i think what ends up happening is early on in the war they actually sign some kind of uh treaty to ban certain types of weapons like they agreed not to use colonies as weapons (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) wow okay yeah Uh, because again like it says that half the population of humanity has already died in these months of warfare yeah. Can I ask you another question? Of course, man. So we've 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 discussed how there are people in the fandom who view Char as the hero of the story. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of curious, like, what your take on that is. Like, do you see that there? Do you feel like there's an argument for that, or do you like not agree with that at all, or do you? kind of agree with it where there's a part of you that i don't know empathizes or roots for char like i guess the first part of that question is who's who's the hero in this story to you definitely amuro okay yeah okay. i mean the, th- the thing with char is that in this series in the story of first gundam Shar, mm-hmm. he's more he's kind of, a, of a sneaky bastard. He is. He's very manipulative, and I, yeah. I think overall, I probably consider him a psychopath, honestly. Ah, uh, okay. Like, so I guess that I, the I just think part about of... like how he was able to be so charming to to someone like Garma, and totally, you know, like Garma the whole time, like Garma thinks that this guy is looking out for him, and then at the end, like the last thing he hears before he dies is Char laughing at him. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, come on. That's a pretty <laughs> psychopathic thing to do, right? Uh, yeah, I'd say so. I'd say so. Thanks, man. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I'm kind of curious, though. Um, so do you think there's any argument to be made at all that Char could be the hero? Like, does it perplex you that there are people out there that root for him or that view him as the hero of the story? It doesn't perplex me. The same way that I'm perplexed by people who love Carnage or Venom. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, I had to like there because uh, <laughs> the thought of that it it hurt my ribs. <laughs> it, it was like a it was like a swift donkey kick to the ribs. If I had to say. <laughs> Well, here's here's another thing about Shar. He's not the supreme military commander of Zeon or anything. So he wasn't the one who made the decision to drop a colony on a populated city. You know, yeah. he didn't say let let's drop a colony on Sydney, Australia, and just wipe it off the map. You know, he he wasn't the one who said that. But um, at the same time, I will say this. I sh- I feel like I need to add this. Uh huh. If uh. 
if you asked me whether I thought he was capable of that decision, I'd probably say yes. <laughs> That's fascinating, man. Because, yeah, he, he definitely is capable of that. Yeah. <laughs> you didn't think so? <laughs> no, he, he is. He is. Okay. Yeah. Right? I, I mean, just because he didn't act, he wasn't the one that made the decision. Yeah. I, I mean, just, I don't know what he's like later on in the story, but just based on what I've seen, what I've already seen so far... I oh, yeah. definitely feel like he's more than capable of doing that. Or, you know, even if he wasn't the first guy to come up with that idea, it wouldn't surprise me if he would, uh, if he was the guy that would eventually come up with that idea, you know? Totally, man. Totally. Because you, you got to think that someone who has no problem killing somebody who thought he was, you know, a good friend. Yeah, that that kind of person should have an easy time killing a bunch of people that he doesn't even know. Exactly. Exactly. But I, right. I think the other element to Shar in this story that that adds a little bit of shading or some kind of a degree of uh, moral ambiguity is. And, and I'm jumping ahead here from where we uh, left off in the recap. But at the end, uh, when he when he does, when Garma ends up dying Shar explicitly tells him that the reason why he had to die was because he was the son of the of the zabi the family ruling class yeah yeah and and uh yeah i mean i'm not gonna spoil what what happens beyond this volume but i think just the idea that Shar somehow for some reason has a vendetta against the the sovereign ruler of zeon mm-hmm. and his family that I think that adds a little extra shading to him because he's not just some ace pilot fighting yeah. for Zeon, you know, like he has yeah. his own agenda too. Yeah. And I th- I think that's the element that people gravitate towards him, or it's it's one of the elements that make people gravitate towards him. It's it's almost like he's. <laughs> this sounds kind of corny, but like he's like some sort of reckless bad boy or something. Yeah, he's yeah. Beholden to no master. And that's that's the thing that people seem to uh, gravitate towards, right? Yeah, it's like, I he's think such that's a accurate. badass. It's, yeah. it's kind of that Wolverine factor where it's like Wolverine's on their team, but he don't like Cyclops too yeah. much. <laughs> he don't like Professor X too much because at the end of the day, Wolverine gonna do what Wolverine gonna do, and he's the best there is at what he do. Yeah, which is Jean Grey, an underage Jean Grey. <laughs> 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 that's you, what he do you move too fast for me man <laughs> uh, anyways uh okay okay thanks for clarifying that yeah oh and the other thing i was gonna add in regards to uh Zeon's presence on earth is, is that because of their mobile suits and their technology they were a that that helped them get a foothold on earth so they they not only have established a base in the Los Angeles area, but later on we'll find that they've got uh, some other bases throughout uh, the throughout Earth. So this isn't the only group of Xeon on Earth. Mm. Uh, there's there's a yeah, I mean just as as a military force, all the land that they were able to take, they they needed to get resources for themselves to, you know, just in terms of building material for Yeah, just living off the land. 
Yeah. Um, wait, so just to clarify my understanding mm-hmm. of it. So, so they're all the way out inside three, you said, right? Yeah. So when they, is the presumption that they just came all the way from side three to earth and just with whatever forces they had and just overwhelmed whatever the earth defense forces were? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. I, I yeah all right, I I don't think they came in full force to like try and literally conquer the planet, mm-hmm. but they definitely came with enough forces to land on certain continents to to capture key locations. Right, right, right. So uh, I think one of the more notable locations they they captured was a, a place with a lot of minerals, so they could have. Uh, you know, they could mine for ore to, to build stuff for their yeah. weaponry. Yeah. Uh, I'm not really sure what makes Los Angeles so important, <laughs> but... <laughs> <laughs> uh, 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 um, it kind of reminds me of... Uh, what was it? I think it was an episode of The Simpsons uh-huh. where they were, they were doing a, a story where... The United States government had developed a, a secret plan called, uh, where, yeah, the United States government had a secret plan called Operation Whipping Boy, where okay. in the first moments of a nuclear war, all of the f- nuclear facilities around the country were to blow up like Springfield or something like that in order to test their aiming capabilities before they fired it at their actual enemies. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was The Simpsons. I might have to reevaluate that, but I always thought that was funny. That is pretty funny. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The other thing I was going to ask you about uh, Chapter 1 in particular, just the whole scene where we have Amaro lying around in bed and not wanting to fight. Like, what? Did you have any thoughts on, on Amaro? Uh, I didn't think that that was a good character building moment in that, um, in the last battle, so I don't, I don't really remember the volume one too clearly, but from, from what I remember in that, at towards the end of that volume, they were descending from space onto earth. Mm-hmm. And during that conflict, he took it upon himself to be in his Gundam unit so that he could defend the ship as it made it to the planet. But it was a pretty harrowing ordeal overall. Mm -hmm. And I think this scene is just a signifier that it kind of messed him up, you know? He was a little traumatized by that entire thing. Yeah, definitely traumatized. Yeah. It's pretty pretty harrowing. It's almost like... I I don't know what the... The technical diagnosis of combat fatigue is, but like that's that was the first thing that crossed my mind when when I saw the state that he was in. Yeah, like I don't know if he was quite as messed up as the worst versions of it that we've seen in other works of fiction, but mm-hmm. you know you could tell that he wasn't okay. You know. Yeah. And, and I don't know what the passage of time was between that last incident and that moment, but it felt like it was pretty quick. Yeah, you know, c- like couldn't. I mean, they just landed on Earth 
in at the end of volume one so it, it couldn't be more than like a day or two by the time this volume starts yeah and they were already asking him to get right back into it yeah uh, yeah it'd be like why were it might just be like can i can i get it a day just to I almost died out there <laughs> yeah yeah I pretty almost much died on on descent into the atmosphere of the planet i could have burnt up in in the atmosphere to like a freaking charcoal briquette yeah <laughs> can i can i have that can i can i have a few hours exactly yeah it's it's uh just a lot of frenetic action that they've got to face it's kind of interesting to think that we see the hero in this kind of vulnerable state so early on in the story too like it's not well, it's not necessarily is, like the typical yeah. hero that you would expect to see right yeah well, what I was going to say, he is just a teenage boy. Like, yeah. he, in, in the last story, it's established he's not even a soldier. He's His dad yeah. was a scientist, and he just happened to have access to, you know, uh, documents and, and files on the Gundam that gave him the knowledge to use it, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, he's not... He's He's had a couple of fights, and he understands that he needs to do what he has to do, but uh, I don't think he's he never anywhere near close to any battle kind of hardened. Training. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. He's not battle hardened. He hasn't been trained. So on some level, I bet he feels yeah. lucky to be alive. Yeah. Realistically speaking, that that's probably the more realistic response to have. Um, but mm-hmm. yeah, you're right. It's not, it's not the stereotypical, hero that you would expect to see in in like a in like a war story you know where the guy mm-hmm. is just an ace pilot and has all his crap together or whatever you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah so but i yeah that was a good moment I, I thought that was a very uh telling bit of character building yeah definitely yeah Okay, so moving on to section two, Amuro sorties against Garma's forces as Shar amusedly watches the battle from the back line. The white base crew is impressed at how proficient Amuro has become as he turns the tide. Near the end of the battle, when Shar is on the bridge of Garma's ship, he unhooks a cable, and when Garma returns, he berates his men for failing to notice that that cable had been unplugged. And what that exactly did I, I don't really remember but it was a telling moment to tip us off that Shar had some kind of ulterior plan even though he was acting he was acting like one of uh garma's pals uh, yeah at the moment and amuro uh after the battle he's back on white base he tries to rest but he's clearly been through a lot did you catch exactly what Shar unhooking that cable really accomplished um i don't like really know what that what the 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 purpose the purpose of it was but i imagine that you know him being the uh manipulative um you know gamesman or whatever he is whatever the term is for for that kind of person who just likes to toy with people Mm -hmm. um it served that purpose 
mm-hmm. that it's it's a means of undermining uh this guy's authority and you know just kind of pissing on the guy's shoes essentially. <laughs> that's true man yeah like i i'd have to go back to take a look at it but when you were reading it, uh, because this is your first experience with it, like, what was your impression of Shar and Garma's relationship? Uh, I mean, it's kind of like we were saying earlier. It 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 feels like they're friends. It's a friendly rivalry, I guess, is probably the best way to put it. But <sighs> emphasis on the friendly part in that it's just these two people that are, again, trying to one up each other because they have their you know they're trying to gain posterity over the other guy right mm-hmm. and it's yeah it just feels like there's this sense that it's this ongoing dick measuring contest between these two guys mm-hmm. and but you know at least on the surface it it feels like it's all just in good fun you know <laughs> yeah you know like goose and maverick or something <laughs> It feels like every time Shar says something to Garma, he's just smirking. Yeah, well, I mean, to be fair, it, that feels like that's kind of his default mode. Is that's true? Uh, he's always he's always got this sense that he's the smuggest, smartest guy in the room. He is very smug, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. What was your interpretation of that moment? It's hard for me to say what my what I first thought the first time I read it, just because that was quite a long time ago. But one thing I will say about the manga uh, in comparison to the anime, from what I remember watching the anime, Garma feels more uh, Garma feels more like a real person in in the manga. Because in the anime, I kind of felt like he was a, the kind of guy that... Uh, Is he just sort of, a dupe? <laughs> yeah, sort of like a one-note character, you know? Like, he wasn't... He was just a guy that was going to get duped by Char. And mm-hmm. uh, <clears throat> therefore, you, you didn't really worry about what he could do to White Base. Because if this guy is so uh, gullible towards Char, then how could he possibly be a threat to... The, the protagonist that we follow um but i felt like reading reading the manga um and because yoshikazu yasuhiko had worked on the original series and was one of the key figures he probably thought it was necessary to to give garma a little bit more characterization mm-hmm. we start mm-hmm. to see some of that even as early as chapters one and two of, of this book and and i think later on we see even more of it it just comes through a lot stronger, even though a lot of the scenes are still pretty similar from what I remember in the anime. Mm. I think there's just like either bits of dialogue or just certain facial expressions that kind of, kind of, uh, to be honest, I guess they kind of made me feel sorry for him. Yeah. <laughs> like I, I knew that he was, I knew his fate coming up, but. I couldn't help but feel pity for this guy who was just like on some level he just wanted to to prove that he had his position not because he was 
the leader's son, but because yeah. he deserved it, you know? Yeah. I guess I'm looking at the scene now, and I guess it also serves to foreshadow what we were talking about earlier uh, about how Char does have this potential ulterior motive. And on top of that, it signifies that although uh, Zeon is... Um, although Zeon is on the on the surface this uh malevolent force that the federation is in contact with uh in in opposition with uh they're not nearly as cohesive as we think they are Mm -hmm. and i think a lot of the times if you take into account history uh that that tends to be the case you know that a lot of the times when we look at you know at political or not not even political but like at military powerhouses uh throughout the world we uh, throughout history we usually look at them as though they're just this one cohesive unit but we fail to realize that there are several layers of leadership and there's constant vying for position and power within them mm-hmm. you know I think <clears throat> I think there are certainly instances where, especially in hindsight, after the war has ended and after a side has lost, when you pick apart everything that happened, where you see how, um, in the most severest of circumstances, those fractures can lead to why they lost, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, is there something I, specific that comes to mind in history? Yeah, quite a few, actually. Like, I think in one of the things that I remember learning was that during World War II, Japan, for example, there was a pretty uh, strict, uh, a pretty wide fissure between, like, the Navy and the Army, from what my understanding was, to the point mm-hmm. where I think the Navy even ended up creating their own, like, army assault units so it got to a point where they weren't willing to share resources with each other and uh you know their own petty grievances were enough that they were trying to curry favor with the emperor to the detriment of the overall goal which was you know winning the war mm-hmm. yeah um that's a good point yeah like yeah, like if you dive into it a little, you'll see that one of the things that hurt them was that the the navy and the army had this division between them. Um, another example was Italy in World War Two. Uh, you know, Mussolini was a pretty he's a pretty pretty big talker, but if you look at his uh, his military leadership. There was definitely a lot of infighting there, uh, mm-hmm. and it it definitely made them a far less effective uh, military unit at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah. So I do I do think again I don't know what Char's overall goal is here. I don't know what his uh, backstory is, but. 
it is interesting to think that it's like you said, uh, Garma is is more than just this one dimensional character. He's he's definitely got his insecurities, and unfortunately, in in war, that's not the place to <laughs> have those feelings, you know, yeah. because you've got you know uh, people without and within who are going to try to take advantage of the situation. Um, you know, people who want to be in charge, who want your position, or people who just want you dead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So That is a good point. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting that you brought up the example of Japan's Navy and their Army. Because mm. from what I remember uh, about their navy their navy was really well regarded yeah. during world war 2 like that was th- basically like the pride of their of their country you know like yeah. they felt that as long as they had the the yamato the battleship they yeah. would they would never be uh, defeated yeah so and 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 the yamato and um what was the other ship that they built that was in the same class i forget what it was called i don't remember either but anyway, like those two ships were like the two biggest uh, battleships ever made in human history and must have used a whole ton of material to construct. Yeah, but at the end, from what I remember, at the end of the day, like the at the end of the day, the like the technology seemed to be moving towards uh, planes as opposed to battleships. So they created this giant hulking battleship that was supposed to be the biggest in the world and you know planes ended up just sinking that sucker yeah because it was just so big and unwieldy and it just took a couple of pilots and a couple of bombs to like blow that sucker up a lot of their planes at least at the beginning of the war their air superiority was pretty high too yeah yeah and it it wasn't until like attrition really decimated their experienced pilots when uh you know the when the US's um army air force was able to kind of assert itself in the pacific theater mm-hmm. yeah but no you're you're right like especially early on in the war like with their victories at pearl harbor and uh there was a lot of emphasis placed on on battleships because you know that's how britain conquered half the world mm-hmm. so they they thought that that was their recipe for success and um it wouldn't surprise me that members of the navy would feel like they were entitled to yeah. the best and the brightest and all of the all of the resources yeah know? yeah exactly do you think that uh, Xeon kind of functions as an analog for Imperial Japan in a way? I mean, now that you mention it, I like I, I couldn't say for certain whether that was the case, but there is something about that, viewing it with that context where you go, huh, there's, there's definitely... Well, not definitely, but it, it does feel like they're drawing for from some sense of personal history there, right? Yeah. Like, 
if anyone's going to tell a story like that, then it it, it, it makes sense that it would be them. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it's definitely something to to continue to, to ponder as we yeah. continue to move forward in the series. I just Googled this while we were talking and, you know, uh, you know, it's just Google. So take that with a grain of salt. But here's the thing that popped up. Uh, Long term discord between the Imperial Japanese Army and Imperial Japanese Navy was one of the most notorious examples of inter-service rivalry. The situation with its origin traced back to the Meiji period came with both geopolitical and military consequence leading to Japan's involvement in World War Two. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. good info. Yeah. I mean, it's... I, I'm sure there are books and stuff out there, like, uh, that go way more into detail about that whole thing, but... Yeah, yeah. even yeah. the general brushstroke gives us a, a picture of the... I guess the way that this story, this manga, kind of imitates reality in a way, or is, I guess yeah. is shaped by similar things that are realistic well the other thing that that occurs to me and this is something we talked about well i don't remember if we talked about this specific thing but um when we were talking about akira there was a lot of there were a lot of things that we might have been i don't want to say projecting but putting into the subtext of the movie yeah, and I remember an interview where Otomo was that you I think you sent me where Otomo was just saying true, all that stuff wasn't really stuff that he had planned. It was just at the end of the day he was just telling an action story, right? Yeah, and but the interesting thing about that is I don't I don't think that writers maybe they're not always conscious of it, but they do draw from their experiences and. Mm-hmm. And what they put on paper or what they put on screen, maybe it's not uh, an explicit statement of what their beliefs are, but it does come from somewhere, you know? Yeah. Maybe it's subconscious, but it's it's not an idea that just came out of nothing, you know? Their, their experiences, their life experiences, the, the things that they've soaked up uh, via osmosis... Uh, those things shaped those opinions and those ideas. And it wouldn't surprise me if, um, you know, if, if uh, Yoshikazu Yashuko, uh, Yasuhiko, Yasuhiko uh, had a similar sort of uh, experience, you know, when, mm-hmm. when, when he was writing this, when he was writing um, Condemn the Origin. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Plus, we have to take into account uh, the other man who's regarded as the creator, uh, Yoshiyuki Tomino, uh, who was like the the comparison that that gets thrown around. Uh, and I've seen this and I actually saw this in a documentary about the original Gundam anime series from 1979. But one of the other key animators on the series basically called Tomino, who was the director, he called him Bright Noah and he called Yasuhiko Amaro. <laughs> so like that was kind of the I guess the relationship that that they had uh in the production where you know the director was the one who's making all the calls and and 
overseeing the production and Yaz was the one who kind of made it all happen at least until he until he got sick it's yeah. interesting too to think about how we analyze works because sometimes sometimes people there's a certain critical uh school or uh, school of critical thought that says you should never take into account the author's intentions because they don't mean anything and the only thing that you should look at is the text and the text will you know you analyze the text and you don't have to like whatever the author says in an interview or whatever really has no bearing on what the text in and of itself says mm. I, I don't know if i necessarily subscribe to that thought mm. actually i'm pretty sure i don't yeah yeah <laughs> but yeah but at the same time, like the... in that example that you shared about um, what Otomo said about Akira, there's, I don't know, sometimes it's almost like, I get that he's saying that, but I don't know if I believe him either, you know? Right. But at the same time, I can't dismiss what he said. So I have to, I have to like weigh both sides of the equation and understand that there's a chance that he's being honest, that he really didn't intend what we're seeing in it. Yeah. But we're still seeing it for yeah. some reason and yeah. and i think that's that's still just fascinating to me to to consider in anything in any work of fiction the other thing that i might want to interject is <laughs> i i do i do wish i had a better mastery of like the tones of of japanese language Heck, even the language itself, obviously. But, you know, I, I, I'd i be curious to see, like, what he was, how he was trying to communicate that message when as he was saying it, right? So mm -hmm. there's a part of me that's, that wonders whether he was being cheeky or whether he was being sarcastic. Like, how, how committed was he to that belief that that's true. he wasn't really thinking of anything when he made this movie right yeah uh, you know thinking of any political commentary when he made this movie uh yeah that's that's something that's lost on me as someone who doesn't know japanese <laughs> yeah or or doesn't necessarily get where the subtleties of japanese language and humor might be lost on me yeah we're limited in that way we all totally. we can do is do the best we can with the translations that we get yeah for sure, for sure. All right, let's move on to chapter three here. So Garma's base of operations is in Hollywood, and he and Shar catch up after Shar takes a shower. It's a pretty notable shower scene, by the way. Yeah, you see a lot. You see his bare butt. Yeah, it's, it's uh, pretty fleshy. It's, it's fan service for, you know, a certain type of fan. That could also be one of the reasons why people like Char so much because he's hot. Yeah, there's there's definitely a hotness factor to him. He's definitely more uh, physically attractive than Amaro. I mean, I'll have to wait and see. For all I know, in a couple of volumes, you might just see just pure wang from Amaro. And <laughs> I might just have to like put down the book and clap <laughs> just to be like, well done, Amaro. You did it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's obvious by this point that both Shar and Garma have a history together. And while they're 
getting caught up with one another. We have White Base licking its wounds somewhere else. Uh, White Base lands for some repairs, but everybody in the crew is on edge, and they're still carrying the refugees from Side 7, and those refugees are starting to get restless. Eventually, a faction of these restless refugees take Frabo and the three orphan children hostage in an attempt to be let off the ship. Yeah. White Base ends up contacting Garma's forces to arrange a temporary ceasefire so that these refugees can deboard. So what did you think of the fact that these refugees ended up taking Fraubo and these little kids hostage just so they could get off the ship? Oddly enough, that that scene stuck out more to me than stuff in the previous sections. Mm-hmm. Um, it. I don't know what it was about it, but I I guess it goes back to one of the to to the same idea that I mentioned earlier, where where like likewise with um with Zeon, we're seeing that the heroes here they're not a cohesive unit either. They have their own uh problems to deal with that are outside of just surviving because there's definitely there's there's infighting going on here as well mm-hmm. you know you would think that everybody would be in this situation where hey we're all about to die like is this really the time for this sort of behavior yeah exactly and, and i guess it just goes to show that people aren't logical under those circumstances if anything uh the pressure and the stresses are likely to make them less logical and and maybe you can look at that as a work of fiction that that wouldn't really happen in real life but living two years in quarantine i'd say that i believe that yeah exactly I believe it could happen it solidified my belief that even in times of stress where our survival is contingent on our on on our ability to follow rules, there are going to be people that don't because maybe they're doing it out of fear or maybe they're doing it out of selfishness or maybe they're just idiots. I don't know, (laughs) but you know, I do believe that, you know, if if the world, if the moon was going to crash into the earth tomorrow, there would be people trying to you know steal as much water uh or and canned goods to try to live out their remaining days in opulence yeah you know? yeah i mean it wouldn't just be food and water i'm pretty sure they would be stealing electronics and you know entertainment things and yeah you know whatever that people could get their hands on yeah ju- they just take advantage of the situation to the worst possible degree to gain whatever they can gain because people are dicks, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's true, man. It's There's true. no way to really put it. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah, you, you can't really deny that. And I don't, yeah. These refugees. I, <laughs> yeah, they, they definitely lived up to that. Yeah. Sometimes it feels like this isn't really a comics podcast as much as it is a co- podcast we we just air our grievances towards humanity. <laughs> yeah. yeah, every comic that we discuss is just 
a cover story for us so we can say what we want. <laughs> How awful people are. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're not making commentary on a science fiction manga here. We're making commentary on humanity itself. <laughs> uh, if I was to grade humanity as a phenomena, straight F, homie. <laughs> <laughs> Give it one star out of five. Yeah. <laughs> the other thing that I noticed about the scene was, you know, was was the the response of the leadership too, mm-hmm. because here they are. They're in this moment where they're struggling for their survival, right? And yeah. then this hostage situation takes place, and from what I remember, Bright's response was just basically to say. If they want off the ship, let them off, you know? Yeah. We'll find a place. Like, I, I have more than enough problems, <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, it's it's not heroic, but... It's practical. It's practical, and there's a truth to it, too. There, There's a part of me that feels like if I were in a similar situation, I probably would have done the same. Yeah. You know? I mean, what... what if they want to go out there... If they want to go out there and they want to die... Because they're too stupid and too prideful to listen to my to direction, yeah. to my reason, then by all means, go. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, what what do you think were his other options in that situation? He could have risked manpower and force to try to, to reassert himself, reassert control over the situation. Somebody that, definitely would have died if that happened. Yeah, absolutely. Or he could have tried to negotiate with them to try to keep them on board out of maybe there's some form of fiction some fiction out there where he he does the noble heroic leader you know he he takes the, on the role of the noble heroic leader and he is able to reason with them and win them over with his uh inspiration right mm-hmm. but I feel like his response was certainly more realistic in that, again, like, they don't want to listen to me and they want to go, fine. That's no skin off my nose. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing to consider is that they were in dangerous territory because I think in Chapter 1, when they land on Earth, we actually get a picture of the map. So we know that they're a little bit, they started off, or they landed somewhere a little bit east of Los Angeles. and uh like Xeon was pretty much in control of most of the coast except for like little pockets of the coast and they're trying to make white base is trying to make their way down to south america but they you know need to pick up supplies and things at other federation stops or pockets on on the way so the idea of them being in enemy territory and having to deal with essentially what's uh an uprising of these refugees that in a in a way like these refugees are pretty lucky that white base took them in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. So like they could have just to, sacrificed the ship. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So for these, these uh, refugees to basically become a, a little rogue faction and take hostages. It, 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 I thought that was pretty messed up, man. Yeah. Like there, there was no realistic uh, place for them to go. Like they're kind of, yeah, like you think about what, where they landed, they're like in the desert. Yeah, it's like I don't know. 
I don't know my geography like perfectly, but that looks like where Coachella is or something, you know? Yeah. So it's like we're even if they get off, where are they gonna go? Like they're gonna if they try to fly somewhere, that's uh you know kind of iffy. Like yeah, they're in enemy territory, and yeah, White Base did arrange a temporary ceasefire. But are you willing to risk your life on the fact on the idea that the ceasefire will hold that that the enemies won't uh betray you or anything yeah it's like man where, where is the common sense in in what they were doing and there you even see a couple of scenes where they where you hear some of the reasons from some of the hostage takers and it's just stuff like my family lives over that hill yeah stuff like that. <laughs> it's just really just stupid stuff you know <laughs> it's i don't know the yeah, it's it, it it's kind of cartoony, but at the same time, it's I believable. Believe, yeah, exactly. I believe that there are people that would behave thus. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So looking at chapter four now, the hostages begin their departure on a transport ship, but White Base prepares against Garma's forces just in case. Char leads a squad of Zakus in search of White Base. The transport with the refugees is forced to land, and the refugees start to trek on foot to the various towns or cities that they want to go to. Then a mobile suit battle breaks out. Uh, one of the key parts of the story in this chapter was there was a mother and son and her young son who go a different way than the majority of the refugees, but wind up uh facing a giant lake as they head towards a place called saint Ange, which was her deceased husband's hometown and later on uh while the mother and son are in the area by the lake the giant lake they meet a couple of downed zeon pilots who actually treat them pretty kindly mm. and we learn that the lake is saint Ange. so the implication is that fighting from the one year war caused this entire town to be a crater. So yeah. it's a sobering moment. Meanwhile, Amro and Shar fight each other in their mobile suits, essentially to a draw before Shar and his forces make a tactical withdrawal because white base won't fall into Garma's ambush. After the battle, the Federation transport uh, called the Medea arrives to resupply White Base and take the remaining refugees to safety. And the commander of the Medea is someone named Lieutenant Matilda, a beautiful officer who attracts the attention of Amaro in particular, and she gives him some special acknowledgement for his role in the battle so far. And Fraubo seems kind of jealous. This, this was a chapter that jumped out at me because of that little story we get with the mother and her son. Yeah, that was definitely that was the most memorable aspect of this particular chapter for sure. Yeah, um, the whole yeah. town is just a crater, and it's, it's yeah. uh yeah, like they they literally thought it was a lake. They walked up to the to that place, and the mother was like, "Huh, I don't remember a lake being here." Yeah, and she was like, "Well, we'll just have to get across that lake. It's probably on the other side of it." Yeah, but unbeknownst to her, that lake is that was them. That was they. 
<laughs> yeah. It's, it's pretty uh, brutal to imagine what would have caused an entire town to end up looking like that. Yeah. I, I forget. That mother and son, mm-hmm. uh, they were... They're the same mother and son that was in an earlier scene where they were kind of starving yeah. in, the, in the cafeteria. Amuro gave the boy and, his food. Yeah, exactly, right? Actually, uh, in, in that scene, uh, you made me remember another thing where when the the boy looked away, an old man who was sitting next to him grabbed that little boy's bread. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it just goes to show that under tight times, there's... Again, there's going to be predatory people. Like, this old man stole a kid's food. A kid, mm-hmm. you know? And it's interesting to me that when the hostage takers made their demands and were let off the ship, that the mother and the son were part of it. I, like, I don't think they were part of the hostage taking, but since they were all let it, being let out anyways, yeah, they took it that was- opportunity to go. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a it's it's an interesting shift in the story to to follow these two. Yeah. On their journey, even though there's all this other stuff going on on such a higher level, it it injects this sense of. This sense of what the stakes are on on just a human level, right, on for to just. In yeah. terms of what's just happening to to your everyday average person who isn't a soldier in this great war for civilization. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think on a couple other levels, it it's a really effective scene or sequence because we we get these human characterizations of this mother and her son, but particularly the mother. Um, but we also get to, like, through her perspective, we we also view uh, this massive destruction, basically, or or the aftermath of a massive destruction. So it's like the there's there's a sense where sometimes when you consume a war story in fiction, like the the deaths don't really, um, you know dead bodies are just kind of like set dressing or something, you know, like you don't really, they're like Legos. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. You just smash them all and all the pieces yeah. are broken and, you know, and then you just throw them all in a bucket and, and yeah. uh, clean up. Exactly. But <laughs> like the way that this whole <laughs> sequence is portrayed, it, I don't know. He, it's like, yeah, I don't think Yaz uses flash pages that frequently, so like when he does devote a big amount of space to to a single image, it it feels powerful, you know. Yeah. And I... and uh, he he doesn't give like he doesn't use a, a splash or anything on on this moment, but there's a scene where um, the mother like the the entire bottom third of a page is devoted to this view of the crater. And just the expansiveness of it, it's it's conveyed really effectively, even without the use of a full-page splash. Yeah, I'm looking at it right now. Uh, well, I'm looking at the full-page splash where they're looking at the crater. And it's actually pretty serene, you know? What, what page are you looking at? Uh, 190. 
Oh, okay. I was looking at um page 209. Oh, I'm sorry. Hello. Yeah. But yeah, you're right. There was a one-page splash. Yeah. And there's there's something about that. Oh, I I'm okay. I see what you're saying too. Um mm-hmm. just the moment of realization when, where yeah. Yeah. yeah when like, o- 209 is when they when she realizes that that used to be the city. Yeah. And 190 is the page when they first see the crater. Yeah. It's still it's it's an interesting build up because the tension is there and then to end it on on just this peaceful crater. It's it's a pretty uh it's it's a conflicting mix of emotions that you're feeling when you're when you view them in sequence, you know? Yeah, it really is. It's just such excellent storytelling on his part, mm-hmm. on Yaz's part. Mm-hmm. I also like how these uh, two Xeon pilots treat these uh, treat this woman and her son with yeah. kindness. It's like just an interesting thing to see because I guess you might think that uh, the Xeon are the bad guys or whatever, but then you have these two guys. You know, they're not they're not the ones who are taking this little kid hostage. You know? Yeah. They're they're like wrapping up. Uh, or they're they're like giving her uh, the stuff in their escape pod, telling them that there's like water and rations in it. So it's like, huh? And then yeah. when you when you compare that to uh, later on in this book, you see some Federation soldiers, and they treat those townspeople like crap. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that again just goes to show, or or yeah, it goes to show this idea that war isn't necessarily as cut and dry as we presume where uh you know everyone on one particular team is on that team and therefore they're all good to each other and that's it and they're all rooting against the other guy right Mm -hmm. when realistically speaking these are circumstances that affect everyone's standard of living and when you get down to to the bottom line when it comes down to you know what one person wants against what a, another person wants it it almost doesn't matter that they're part a part of the same tribe right yeah 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 and still the the individuals yeah who yeah the individuals you know everybody's got their own their own will and their own set of morals that they live by yeah that's why i completely adhere to the needs of the me versus the needs of the every yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's the safest life philosophy yeah exactly <laughs> we wouldn't have these problems if we just adhered to that <laughs> uh. Oh, man. Okay, so chapter five. With White Base undergoing repairs, most of the crew has a chance for some R&R. Amuro borrows a jeep to visit his mother's town, which is still under Federation control, but dangerously close to Xeon territory. And here we see that the Federation soldiers treat the townspeople like crap and essentially abuse their power to do whatever they want, take whatever they want, treat the people however they want they're essentially like bullies 
Amuro eventually learns his mother is alive and staying at a refugee camp nearby, so he goes to visit her. The people in the refugee camp are wary because he's wearing a Federation uniform and they're essentially in Xeon territory, or at least at the border. In one of the more memorable chapter cliffhangers, Amuro is having a moment with his mother when Xeon soldiers arrive at the camp for a routine patrol. Any thoughts on this chapter, Albert? Mm, I do think that there was a good buildup of tension in this moment. Because mm-hmm. what ends up happening is, you know, he he reunites with his mom. He has this, they, they have their moment together, but then these Xeon officers show up and... You know, he's not really in any shape to defend himself, but his mother tries to protect him, uh, you know, as as any mother would, mm-hmm. uh, on, because she knows that if Xeon gets a hold of him, they, they're going to they're going to kill him. Yeah. And it just becomes this thing where as a reader, you're like, oh, how are they going to how's he going to get out of this? And he just straight up killed kills those guys before they kill him. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and it's it's a pretty uh intense action sequence and he he like starts firing at them. He kills the one guy for sure and the he, he messes him up pretty badly, but the guy gets away and yeah, but by then from what I remember of the the scene I'm I'm trying to look back at it right now. That that um, scene is actually in the next chapter. In oh, the, I'm sorry. Chapter six. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, it's all good, man. It's all good. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, anyways, yeah, he ends up uh, nicking the other guy, and that guy gets away. And from what I remember, they they end up turning on him, right? The the townspeople. Yeah, I think they at least want him to leave. And uh, the the guy that he did shoot, that guy actually survived. He just yeah, like the. The other people in the camp surround the guys, the Xeon soldier, and they're like, it looks like his vitals weren't hit. Uh, we can still try and help him because we're going to we're toast if he dies, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. It was that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's just another example of how. These people like clearly they valued their survival over their loyalty in this case, right? Even though yeah. they were logically they should be allied with uh amaro but yeah you know because of shared history or whatever but because yeah i mean they're if they're on earth they're part of the federation yeah but But there's also this sense where they kind of feel like this isn't our war you know like yeah the soldiers should just fight other soldiers and leave us alone yeah which i i get i guess uh it's it's not heroic but you know it makes sense that they just don't want to die yeah of course what did you think about the federation soldiers and how they were going about in the town because one of the things that really stood out to me was that one scene not not the scene when amuro goes to his mother's house and sees the soldiers just having a party there but uh, I mean, that was definitely something that... It was a pretty messed up scene, too. Yeah, it's pretty messed up. <laughs> I mean, maybe they weren't... Maybe they weren't 
actively doing anything harmful to him personally, but that behavior is it's reprehensible. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure it's okay. If you look at a military person as a person of authority, it's certainly an abuse of that authority, right? Yeah. It's 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 that idea that you know power you know power is accompanied by responsibility, right? Mm-hmm. And their behavior, the way that they were just cavorting with, um, you know, women and the way that they were just drinking and just, uh, no, just messing up somebody's house. Yeah. Just messing up somebody's house, a house that they didn't own. Uh, it, it shows that they weren't taking responsibility. It shows that they had no respect for the people that they were supposed to be in service to or mm-hmm. protecting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's pretty. It's pretty consistent with their behavior, the Federation's behavior, at least in the lower ranks, towards civilians, right? Like, mm-hmm. why would these civilians have any reason to support the Federation if all yeah. they are is a pool of resources for them, right? Yeah, exactly. Like the 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 way that the symbiosis works here is that the the civilians provide whatever resources to the military, and in return the military provides a sense of security. And if that relationship isn't fulfilled, like real yeah, logically speaking, why would they why would they feel anything but resentment for these people? Because mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. they're not giving them security, and all they're doing is taking from them. Yeah, exactly. Right? So, yeah, uh, yeah, it's a good peek into what it's like for them on the ground. You know? Yeah, it really is. And speaking of the ground, that one scene where the two soldiers throw a coin on the ground for that poor lady to pick up on the floor you know that's just like straight disrespectful yeah and i thought the scene where where that happens and amro yells at the lady don't don't pick it up make them pick it up yeah and he just like jumps on the soldier and like starts pounding him before the guy's friend starts beating him like that that was a moment where it felt like huh that's like something a traditional hero would do maybe Maybe a traditional hero wouldn't get his own ass kicked, but <laughs> <laughs> the fact that he stood up for for some lady, like that, that's something that speaks to his character, I think, and and shows you that even though he clearly didn't want to be a soldier and he has his his uh, struggles with with uh, you know being afraid or or just feeling some kind of uh, combat shock. Yeah, like he's. He still knows what's right and what's wrong, you know? Yeah, yeah. There's something at the core of him that is heroic. Mm-hmm. It's not perfect, but... It it's... certainly sets him apart from those other Federation soldiers. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, so moving on to the next section. So this is where uh, the two the two Zeon soldiers inspect the camp, and Amro is lying in bed, posing as an invalid in the hospital area. Meanwhile, White Base receives orders from Jabro 
to assist Federation forces in retaking L.A. Now, Bright's not too happy about this turn of events, but he dispatches Kai and Sela to retrieve Amro for the mission. Unfortunately, their timing as they try to communicate with Amro makes his communications device buzz, which alerts the Xeon soldiers while they're in the room. And as you mentioned earlier, he's forced to shoot one at close range through his blanket, basically. Like, it's it was a pretty savage moment where the guys like, who is this? Let me see who this is. And then you just hear this gunshot and, yeah. and uh, you know, the the bullet hole through the ba- through the blanket. Yeah. So he shoots that guy, and then the other guy runs away. Yeah. And then the the shocking thing is is that Amro's mother is sorely disappointed in him for using a gun on another human being, mm. and he can't believe that she feels that way. So yeah. it, it's, he, I think he says something like, "Would you rather have them kill me? Like, don't you love me, mom?" Mm. Like he's mm. just he's just in disbelief that his mom is mad that he used a gun to yeah. protect himself. Yeah. Amuro links up with Sela and Kai, and after a battle to escape the Zeon on their tail, they make it back to White Base. Amuro has a final curt farewell for his mother, who doesn't want him to be a soldier, and she falls to her knees as he departs with White Base to their next destination. It's Well, first of all, I want to draw attention to the scene where, um, where Amuro shoots the soldier Mm-hmm. Um, I just want to say I want to give credit to just the way that it's drawn. You know, it's it's a bunch of pretty chaotic looking panels. What page but, are you looking at? Uh, one or two, two eighty eight. Oh yeah, or two eighty nine rather, two eighty nine and two ninety. Mm-hmm. So like, well, uh, two eighty eight shows. The mother, as she's uh, trying to hide her son under the blankets, mm-hmm. and then you see the soldiers trying to get a good look at what's under the blankets, and you know there's this one scene in the corner where she's just like, "He's my son," and yeah, it's it's there's a lot of pathos in how that's drawn, but yeah, when he gets shot, it just feels like it goes crazy in there, you know. You, mm-hmm. you get a bunch of close-up shots of everyone's facial expression. You get a close-up shot of the bullet hole coming uh, through the blanket. And it's it's frenetic. And it then is. the following page, it just continues at that pace as Amro's hand comes out and he's got a gun. And he pulls it on the second soldier. And, you know, everything just goes crazy in that instance. It's, yeah, that's pretty crazy. It's a it's really actually, well done page. Yeah, it's it's really well done. Um, the layout is excellent. Where yeah. you've got all these uh, polygonal panels, you know, nothing's nothing's completely. Um, it's not like squares or rectangles on page. Yeah. What is this? Two eighty nine. Yeah. It's like a series of of polygons. So the you know the sides are all uh, uneven, and you just get the sense that there's a lot of. Um, just shocked to it you know it's it's a very jarring moment where yeah. order is disrupted and even there's a there's even this scene in the middle of the page where amuro is just straight pointing the gun at the viewer and he's screaming yeah and the 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 font is just so bold and heavy yeah and huge you know it's 
visually it's it's just crazy looking you know it's exciting the funny thing is is that the guy he's pointing at the other soldier that guy has a gun but that guy just freaks out and turns tail and runs yeah yeah um the other thing that i was gonna talk about was yeah this exchange between him and his mom it's interesting you know like i i didn't think about it when i was as i was reading it Mm -hmm. but you know discussing it with you on on in this episode um when you apply the possibility that this when you apply the possibility that this story could have taken influence from real experiences in uh from uh the World War 2 era mm-hmm. you know just what it was like to grow up well maybe even yeah to grow up in 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 a nation that was fervent about war and then to live in the aftermath of the consequences of that kind of defeat mm-hmm. like i could de- i can see how those influences might be sprinkled throughout this story because there's definitely there's a sense that um again these characters they're they're doing what they need to to survive but yeah but there's an apprehension about it about that behavior you know Mm -hmm. that if there was a way to not do it wouldn't you want to wouldn't you want to live that way yeah of course yeah like uh, yeah just just this conflict between him and his mom is just a a a good example of of that uh philosophical divide uh coming out you know Mm -hmm. so but yeah the I, i i didn't think about it then but you know now that we're discussing it it's it makes me wonder if that was truly something that you know uh, an idea that came from those ex- those kinds of experiences you know yeah yeah that's a good point like that's kind of yeah. she's kind of taken pacifism to a you know to its uh, i guess i wouldn't even say to a whole nother level but like how can you be a pacifist during a war you know yeah yeah i'm i'm looking at this scene here i want to say it's uh geez what page is this uh 308 i think is what it is mm-hmm. but it's a scene where his mom is there and she's looking at an old toy and she's yeah thinking about her son and what her son has become and then on 309 there's two panels at the top where she says he was a sweet boy who couldn't even kill a bug such a good boy and she's just weeping over the idea of that he just killed these men and you know well maybe not cold blood but he killed these men yeah yeah and actually even the page before that while she's holding uh his old toy she's thinking is he like this because his father raised him alone Mm. yeah (laughs) you know just the idea that uh you know men are responsible for this <laughs> yeah it's it's also uh 
or it's I guess it's subtle or unstated, but you do get this we do get this implicit uh or this implication that when Amuro moved to side seven in the colony, you know, his mom stayed on Earth. So mm. clearly uh there was there's something about that family dynamic, you know, like she, she there was no reason why she couldn't moved moved to uh the colony with him and his dad yeah yeah but she she chose to stay on earth and um she's always going to be his mother but it it does make their relationship it gives another dynamic to it you know like i yeah. feel like it his whole relationship even though it's just in these two chapters basically it's i thought it was a pretty painful sequence for him because i mean clearly she's his mother even though uh the last few years he probably hasn't seen her because she Mm. lived on earth but he goes from being worried that she's been killed when he you know when he goes to her her house he sees all these soldiers who have taken it over and like all these other people in the town have died as he talks to that other lady so he's worried that she's been killed then he learns that she's alive and he's just elated you know like when that lady tells him no your mom's alive she's just helping the refugees in in the camp he's super excited he just runs off yeah yeah and then uh you know by the end he's after he kills the zeon soldier or shoots the zeon soldier to protect himself and seeing his mom's reaction it's it's just something where he's completely disturbed by her reaction you know he's completely disappointed when she Mm. rebukes him for that disappointed (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> exactly it ain't his world man yeah <laughs> it's interesting that you mentioned that though it, mm-hmm. it it feels like so much of this chapter is dedicated to the idea of disappointment the yeah. idea that the soldiers that are meant to protect you don't the idea that he fails to live up to his mother's expectation the idea that his mother fails to live up to his expectations mm-hmm. you know it's just Heartbreak after heartbreak after heartbreak. That's a good point, man. Yeah, disappointment probably is a big theme in this whole book because, you know, the previous chapters, like that mother and her son, when they were trying to go to the town, you yeah. know, yeah, that that was that was huge. Uh, then you also have, you know, at the end, obviously, Garma, Garma's disappointment in his someone he trusted. You know, like yeah. th- there's just so much disappointment all around. Well. I guess if you were to take that idea and run with it or extrapolate it to like a larger view of the situation as a whole, you you might say that war as a whole is pretty disappointing. Just, yeah, exactly. It's just for all of the things that we put into the idea of war and, you know, how we dress up dress it up in pageantry and nobility and heroism and all that there's probably a lot more instances where people end up doing unspeakable horrors to each other that aren't heroic yeah you know i mean we might tell ourselves that they're heroic heroic but a lot more to- uh, i i have a feeling that it's more likely that war is the ultimate form of people showing how they can be disappointing to one another mm. you know it's yeah it's people just doing 
terrible things to one another, right? Yeah, yeah. And I, I think when you put it like that, it really does paint this series as an anti-war story. Which is kind of... It's it's kind of an interesting way to look at it, seeing even, because there's so much of it that's dedicated to the cool robots and yeah. the action sequences. Yeah, yeah. That's always the tension whenever you're telling a fictional story about war. Yeah. Like, I, I have a feeling that so much of that is lost to a lot of people. In the same way that there are people who root for Char, right? Yeah. <laughs> there are, I'm, I'm sure that if that was something, if that was the intended message of this series, that it was lost on a whole lot of people who just saw it as a cool story with robots and epic battle scenes. Yeah. Yeah, I'll be honest, man. When I first discovered Gundam, I watched the original movie trilogy when I was in high school. I must have been, I don't know, like 15 or something, you know? Like, this was the late 90s, so this, these movies came out on VHS. And they were not cheap, by the way, but I had so much interest in Gundam that I, I saved up the money to, to buy them regardless and i didn't really know what to expect i mean all i knew was that gundam had giant robots and you know being a young kid i I was just interested in watching cool animation with giant robots fighting but if you if you go back and watch those old gundam movies yeah there's there's action but there's also a lot of scenes that um i guess a, a lot of critics might say that the story drags that there's a lot of scenes in those movies that that don't have action and there's just so much talking and and exposition and character stuff so like when i when i watched those movies i was i I think my first reaction was just kind of confusion like i thought there would be more fighting than this you know like i was my mind was just at that age where i just wanted to see the action and and um explosions and stuff yeah so so to be uh watching this thing where it was actually not all about fighting i kind of had to start to pay attention to the story and it it took me a while to come around like i i definitely have strong memories of watching those movies multiple times trying to trying to figure them out you know because i don't know just as a as a kid you grew up watching uh american cartoons you're just used to a pattern of action in in your movies right like you're there's always going to be the good guys coming out on top and they're not really going to have a whole ton of struggles or obstacles that they can't overcome mm-hmm. but watching gundam seeing that even seeing something like the scene where um amro says goodbye to his mother where clearly their relationship has changed forever and he doesn't really it, it it's it's such a cold farewell it it kind of feels like even though she's alive she might as well be dead to him you know yeah and, yeah, and that... they're not gonna talk to each other anytime soon <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> and and that felt weird man like even as a kid i remember watching that and i was like this is not like anything i've ever seen before you it's know it's a rough note to end on you know yeah. especially when we've been groomed to accept endings where it's happy you know everybody gets along exactly exactly where you know 
at the end of it all, families are united by the fact that they're a family, and that love overcomes everything else, right? Right, right. But then to have this scene where he he's essentially just yelling at her like, peace, you know, <laughs> like, have a good life. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it's pretty stark compared to all all those other kinds of interactions that we have seen. Yeah, I mean, when he says goodbye to his mother, he doesn't even embrace her for a hug. He, I'm looking at the page right now on page 322. Um, you know, Bright is there, and he. It seems like he's offering Amro a chance to, you know, stay with his mom if he wants. Yeah. But Amro is ready to rejoin the crew, and he just looks at his mom, gives her a military salute, and he says, "Please be well, dear mother." And then he turns his back on her and just walks away. Yeah. Yeah. And on top of that, Bright, Bright's just like, farewell, ma'am. Your son <laughs> will be under my care. You know, it's just such a cold transactional exchange. You know, it, it, it just feels like he's just severed whatever ties to his humanity. <laughs> Do you think that, that Amro's... Do you think Amro's mother deserved that kind of treatment, or do you feel sorry for her? I mean, I guess that's the point of war as a whole, right? There are, like, everybody pays a price in the end. Like, mm -hmm. maybe you empathize with one side more than the other, but for some, for an event that affects so many people's lives, at the end of the day, everybody has lost something. And that's the thing that sucks, right? Yeah. Like, the only way to really win is that you just have to hope that you don't end up being the guy that lost more than the other guy. <laughs> yeah, when, yeah. Yeah, that's... Uh, <laughs> I never heard it phrased like that before, but uh, I'll remember that. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a pretty crazy thought, and I feel like I can't unthink it now. <laughs> <laughs> you know? You were the one who thought it in the first place. Yeah, well. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on to section seven. This one starts with Shar and Garma at a party. They're at a party just hobnobbing. Meanwhile, White Base arrives in the ruins of Los Angeles and prepares for the attack with the other Federation forces. Garma and Isolina, his romantic interest, share some tender moments while Shar observes and takes it all in. Kind of a creepy moment, actually, when Shar is just kind of like spying on them. But I guess that's just kind of who he is, too. Just very observant, paying attention to yeah. his his enemies, I guess. I do also feel like that's one of those soap opera, soap opera-y like anime moments mm, that you mm -hmm. see, you know, where the villain's like, you know... What doth I see here? You know? <laughs> Very Shakespearean. Yeah. Methinks the lady protests too much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just stuff like that. Where it's yeah, it's a very like soap opera y element where uh you know, you have to communicate how one person is plotting against another person, so how else to best do it? than by visually putting them in the scene, even though mm. 
there's a sense of uh creepiness like yeah there's a sense of creepiness to it and maybe even a sense of disbelief because that's not how it really works in real life you know Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. again like for for the sake of expediency it's one of those story writing techniques where it conveys what we need to know exactly which is oh he's plotting against this guy he's right here in the scene uh okay we can move forward from there right yeah the Siago. yeah yeah exactly in the mo- it conveys it in the simplest most effective way without having to bend over backwards in the plot to come up with uh some extra story plot where he comes by this information through a long lost twin sister or something like that <laughs> That would be really soap opera-ish. That would be over-the-top soap, opera- <laughs> soap opera-ish. Eventually, some Zakus find the Federation forces, and they begin skirmishing. We see what happens when a mobile suit turns its weaponry on infantry. That was a pretty brutal scene. Yeah, they were just like ants. Yeah. Yeah, they... They... The people basically just exploded from getting shot. Yeah. Yeah. If you look, think of the size of uh, a mobile suit and you think of its artillery um, and like, and you think of how big it is in relation to a person, there is no way that they're not just disintegrated once they get hit. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty savage to use a weapon that big on a person. Yeah. Shar and Garma leave the party and gather their men for the battle. Isolina doesn't want Garma to fight, but she can't stop him because he's a man and he has his duty. <laughs> <laughs> I like how you said that. You put a little oomph in that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you mentioned the soap opera aspect earlier. What's more soap opera-ish than a woman crying because her man is going off into battle? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I forget, is this the chapter, well, no, they, I think in an earlier chapter, Garma and Char are talking, mm-hmm. and it's revealed that he's with, that Garma is with this girl, but, yeah, it, the way that Char talks about it, it makes it sound as though that Garma is only with her because she provides him, uh, information She's the mayor's and access. daughter, yeah, yeah. yeah like a political um yeah convenience yeah 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 well advantage he's getting something out of it exactly right yeah he's, so. he's getting something out of it on multiple levels probably hey hey now i feel like i need to have a slide whistle and a spinning tie or something actually you know what's funny when when there are fans who ship Shar and Garma. I believe it. Yeah. I mean, there is there is something homoerotic about that first scene where they were in the shower. When like, Shar was in the shower. Where Shar was in the shower and Garma was there. like Even, even though he viewing, was just sitting in a room outside, they were still talking to each other. It's salacious on some level. Like, I maybe it's just my subconscious reading of it. But it did feel suggestive. Yeah. You know? There was something suggestive about that entire scene. 
it 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 kind of felt like fan service for a certain segment of fans or maybe even just like female fans yeah but it just went in a slightly different direction <laughs> well <laughs> i don't know maybe those females female fans wanted to see char and garma together i, I don't know man <laughs> i bet you there's you know f- fan fiction and fan comics oh yeah together. No there's no doubt about that no yeah doubt. i I'm think sure... i think people call them sharma okay yeah okay I, I'm sure that there's uh, a section of fandom that want to see Char and Amaro get together. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, there is, man. Yeah, see? There really is. I took a shot in the dark, but I knew what I was hitting. Totally, man. It's yeah. obvious. Yeah. So, not not too much of a surprise there. <laughs> but, yeah, in this scene between uh, Garma and... What's her name? Isolina. Isolina interesting name like we we see that he's a it seems like he's pretty sincere about his feelings towards her yeah yeah surprisingly right because in that earlier scene it it did seem like it was just for his political advantage yeah but they're uh you know they're star-crossed lovers because uh garma is part of this political ruling elite and I'm not exactly sure what her situation is, but whatever it is, it's not something that allows them to be together. She's the mayor's daughter, and the mayor, he's from Earth? Yeah, so it's it's the okay, mayor okay. of L.A., and even though uh, L.A. has been subdued, uh, he's he's secretly been funding the guerrillas. I think that's what they said, or he's either secretly funding or supporting them somehow, yeah. because there's, there's some guerrilla fighters who are trying to fight off the Xeon in Los Angeles, which yeah. is what what helps the Federation uh, decide to take back L.A. Um, but like on the surface, this mayor, he's he's ostensibly, you know, subservient or friendly to the Xeon rulers. Yeah, it's just you know, in his heart, he's helping the the guerrillas. Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, it makes sense that the two of them can't be together. Yeah, her dad hates his guts. Yeah, but also, if he was, if Garma really is the conqueror that he is, like, I I, I guess there's no reason why he would feel like he would need to win her father's approval. That's true, too. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? It's like... We just killed, I just squished like a hundred of your guys. So <laughs> I don't really have to ask for your permission for anything. <laughs> yeah. That's a good point. That's a good point. I, I need to start learning how to think like a fascist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's always good. <laughs> But yeah, what you were saying earlier about how their conversation made it seem like Garma was sincere, I think that's something where the level of humanity and the characterization it adds to Garma, it it makes him feel a little bit softer than you would expect a military commander to feel. Mm. Like he he certainly feels more vulnerable because of it. 
especially when you compare him to Shar, because so far it doesn't really feel like Shar has anybody he he cares about. So you can't really hurt him by, you know, taking that away. Whereas Garma, it it it's implied that he he's not only fighting and leading the Xeon forces and hoping to win this battle against the Gundam. He's not only hoping to win all that's to do all that for, uh, you know, to earn his place as a genuine leader, but it's also to um. I guess I think it he 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 it's either he him or Shar who mentioned that it would be bring glory to to Isolino, you know, like to to win her through some machismo or something, yeah. you know, like I yeah, I don't yeah. know I don't think she actually would care about that. I mean, she clearly doesn't even want him to go to battle, but yeah. I, I think from like either his perspective or from the perspective of Shar trying to manipulate him into into a bloodlust, you know that that's in play too it, it's interesting to see how Shar uses garma's relationship to just manipulate the guy yeah yeah i mean it's i guess that's the other thing of it is this is you mentioned that while um you know while garma and isolina are having this intimate moment char is in the background observing them and you get the sense that i don't know uh, like we mentioned earlier that Char and Garma have this kind of relationship, but it, it's just foreboding, right? Because you know that he's going to do something with that information, even mm-hmm. though you're not quite sure what. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's at this point where I'm like, you know, having gotten to the end of this book where we know what happens. Um, like, I don't know if at this point I had envisioned that that's where he was going to go with it quite yet. Mm hmm where he was going to outright betray him like and and not, it's not even a mob betrayal it's like a straight death yeah. <laughs> betrayal you know you can't you betray to, somebody much more than that yeah exactly it's the final betrayal <laughs> yeah. you know it's not like he he borrowed uh you know his car and you know didn't return it with a full tank of gas or something <laughs> <laughs> you know right um uh, but Again, you you know he's up to something, and I I don't know if it's at this point where, in my mind and in my heart, where I was like, oh, he's going to do something messed up, but you just, yeah, I I just remember waiting to see how that would all play out and what exactly he would do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And luckily that next chapter pretty much puts it all out there. Yeah, so let's... uh... Go on to the next chapter, section eight. So now the battle begins in earnest, and Shar leads a squad of Zakus in search of White Base, which is cleverly hiding in the remains of a large amphitheater. Garma is eager for glory and respect, and Shar knows this. Shar finds Amuro in the Gundam, and they engage in a battle, but eventually Shar backs off so that Garma can have the honor of taking down the Gundam. It's actually a trick as Shar really leads Garma into being ambushed by White Base. Garma's Gao takes a fatal takes fatal cannon fire, and in his final moments, Garma tries to ram his ship into White Base to no avail. Before he dies, he hears Shar admit his betrayal and laugh at him. 
And then at the very end of the chapter, back on side six, side three, Degwin Zabi, the sovereign of Zion, hears the news of his favorite son's death and is deeply saddened. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, man. It's uh it's the final culmination for for Garma at least. I mean, I don't know. So well, it's not a I don't think this is a real spoiler, man, but he's yeah. he really is dead. Okay. <laughs> I was <laughs> if you I were wondering if say, he survived that. <laughs> well, okay. My only other um exposure to Gundam is Iron Blooded Orphans. And mm-hmm. you know, one of the characters seemingly dies in that, but hey, he comes back. That's true. So the funny thing about that was that the guy who killed him was the blonde-haired, suave kind of smug guy, and the guy who was betrayed also had purple hair. <laughs> they've they've developed a formula, and they've they've just decided to stick to it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, man. But this is a it's a pretty action packed ending to this chapter, you know, and uh, Char basically plays Garma like a fiddle. He knows he says all the right things to him to get him riled mm-hmm. up. And mm-hmm. and you're right. He 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 knows that if he can convince this guy that he can win glory either to justify his position as not being uh you know as not being there because of his family name and if he can also take this opportunity to win glory so that he can prove himself for Isolina mm-hmm. like those are there are so many things there so many reasons there for any idiot to want to believe that you know <laughs> like it's just the right amount of reasons to convince a stupid that this is a good idea yeah <laughs> that um, is so true man yeah you know like just how what a way to stroke a guy's ego you know he really did like yeah. when you if you go back and look at every interaction between Shar and garma from the beginning of volume two it's like the whole time, man. Shar is just building him up for this moment. Yeah, yeah, right. And and then just to have it all come crashing down on him, like that's a ooh, that's a gut punch. Yeah, and and not only does Garma die, but Shar makes absolutely sure that he knows why yeah. he dies. Yeah. Yeah, it, he doesn't make it sound seem like it was an accident or something, because Garma's like, wait, what did you just say? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's... He he couldn't believe it, man. He wasn't yeah. expecting Char to do that. Yeah. It's a... It's a pretty Machiavellian and uh, clever way to screw someone over. Mm-hmm. That's, mm-hmm. that's truly melodramatic, but... I don't know. Did you did you see that coming the first time you read it? Um, I'm trying to think back to the first time I watched Gundam because that was a pretty big thing that happened early on in in the story, and I I'm pretty sure that I was surprised 
just because it was one of those situations where the way I, as a teenager, the way I looked at it, you know, Amro was the good guy and he was a hero and Shar was the bad guy. He was the antagonist, the villain. So it didn't cross my mind that the villain would betray the other people on his own side. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it just adds that additional layer of intrigue to to the story as a whole because what Shar says to Garma in his last moments it kind of sets up quite a bit and gives us some hints as to what Shar's motivations are because mm. mm. he specifically says I'm looking at uh, page 405 like at the bottom of the page he says if you can hear me Garma blame your unfortunate origin it was your misfortune to be born the son of that sinful Degwin Soto Zabi. While you were a fine friend, your father deserves this. And then he just starts laughing. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, nothing personal, but you need to die because I, I hate your dad. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah, man. It's, you're right. Like, I coming into this blind and not knowing anything about what happens um it, it it does make me curious to see what char's angle is you know mm-hmm. um like why does I, he care about degwin zabi yeah exactly uh, what is this guy is is he like the joker or something is he just an agent of chaos what's where 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 is this guy what what does this guy get out of this what's his deal man what's his deal <laughs> what's his deal <laughs> Uh, but yeah um it it definitely left it left me wanting to know where this goes in the next volumes in the coming volumes Mm -hmm. i think the the last couple pages that's the first time that we've seen the leader of zeon right i believe so yeah yeah you see degwin zabi sitting on his throne and he he drops his scepter uh, out of shock when he He's learns that. He's a broken that, man. Yeah. Yeah. He learns that his favorite son is dead. His youngest son had perished in battle. Mm. Do you feel sorry for that guy, even though he's dressed like a fascist and, you know, <laughs> <laughs> started a war? <laughs> no, not especially. <laughs> <laughs> I will say these last pages where they color them, like, they're, they're just beautiful. It's really beautiful, you know? Yeah. Um you know, I'm enjoying the series and I'm 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 keeping up with it, but there are there are some scenes where the black and white I do feel like it makes it hard to tell what's going on from time to time. Mm-hmm. Where, you know, there's a lot going on in the action and uh, you know, there's debris and oh wait, Debris and <laughs> There's so much debris, and uh, there's uh, explosions and fire and smoke and all this stuff going on. And when you look at it in black and white, sometimes it's... I I feel like I really have to stare at it for quite a bit to make... Like, like I remember looking at some of the Gundam battle scenes, where Mm -hmm. the Gundam was fighting some of the uh, Zeon, the Zakus. 
and I wasn't sure what I was looking at. I was like, I think he's kicking him here, but I couldn't really tell. And it was in those instances where I I, I did wish that the whole thing was colored. <laughs> oh, yeah. That would have yeah. been so much work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, maybe someday, like, who knows? But, but you know, I appreciate the work for what it is, for sure. Yeah, and part of me does feel like some of the chaotic, chaotic moments in those battles is intentional. That makes sense. I mean, this, this is uh, a, a battle for life and death between these people, right? So... Yeah, because when I look at some of these battle scenes, like I'm right now, I'm specifically looking at the battle that starts around like page 386 when Amuro fights uh, a couple of Zaku's. Mm-hmm. Like to to me, I I thought that was pretty clear, but there is that one panel on uh, page 390, which maybe that's the page that you were thinking of, because you it's like a big shot of the Gundam's leg. And it's kind of like just flung upwards, but you also see like part of the Zaku, and it, it's did you say it's not exactly, yeah, three ninety. Okay, it's it's not exactly clear what's going on, but I mean the the panel before it shows the Zaku tackling the Gundam through a a building, so it just looks like to me I I just think that they're crashing through a bunch of debris. <laughs> and, and even though, like, maybe if you just isolate that one panel, maybe it's hard to tell exactly what's going on. But I feel like looking at it as a cohesive unit, as an entire scene, it mm. it makes sense to me. Like, I can still figure out, like, the final outcome of, of what's happening um, throughout the entire scene. But mm. I, can, I can also understand how looking at a, a single panel can, things can be a little bit chaotic at times. Yeah, but again, I do think that's purposeful because it feels like there's definitely a method to the madness. Yeah, exactly. Because like the rest of the time, his storytelling is so crisp and clear. You know, like yeah, it's it's so easy to follow when when the when they're not having mecha action scenes. Mm -hmm, So it mm -hmm. it, to me it feels like the chaos is purposeful and intentional. Mm Do you have any other Thoughts or any favorite moments from Volume Two that we didn't uh, mention? I think we discussed all the scenes that jumped out to me the most. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was yeah. also I'm curious. Did you uh, piece together what exactly is going on with the Zabi family just through the bits of dialogue between Garma and Shar? Um, and then seeing Degwin Zabi at the end. Not really. I, I, yeah, I, I, I have no idea what. Is there something going on? <laughs> I mean, uh, well, I mean, just to clarify, the I think there were. I remember seeing references in the dialogue to Garma's siblings. Mm-hmm. So I believe Shar at one point says that he's. Or he he asks Garma to order him to do something, right? Do you do you remember that scene? Yeah, I do and, remember him talking like, about how he has to be ordered. Yeah, he's like he says something, and the way he says it is pretty funny too, because he's basically like, you know, you're the 
you're the commander of of the earth forces or north american forces and uh you know you, you can talk to you should, you need to talk to me with more authority he's like basically trying to hype up garma and like yeah. pump up his head or fill up his head you know mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um and he says you, you you should order me if you want me to do something and then garma says something like you're you're not technically under my command and i i, I forget if garma or shar says it but there's a, a reference to how Shar is under the command of someone named Dozel. Mm. So, mm. so that guy is actually another one of uh, Garma's siblings. And then in another conversation that they have, they mention that Garma is trying to prove himself to someone named Cassilia. And that is his sister, who's another uh, you know, high-ranking military leader in Xeon's yeah. forces. It sounds like it's a video game with, like, Sub bosses, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's all of all of uh Degwin Zabi's kids. Amro's got to beat yeah. them all. <laughs> Degwin Zabi is basically King Koopa, and all his kids are the various uh Koopa kids. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great an- uh, analogy. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any uh favorite characters? Th- I mean, you've gone through two volumes now. Has anyone, like, stood out to you above the rest of them? So the funny thing is, um, I, I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm just a uh, contrarian or something, but seeing as how you brought it to my attention that so many people like Char, I, you I don't, don't know like if him? I, like, hate him or anything, but <laughs> I'm not enamored by him, you know? I don't think... I don't think there's anything about him that makes me look at him with reverence or anything. You don't want to grow up and be just like him? I don't want to grow up to be just like him. If he died, I wouldn't feel bad for him. Uh, <laughs> you know, I don't root for him to succeed. Mm-hmm. I'm pro- In fact, I'm probably more inclined to say that I root for him to fail. Okay, okay. Um, so he's like your favorite character to root against or hate? I guess, uh, like, I, I mean, I feel like it's it's a a default thing to to root against. Well, okay, for me, it feels like it's obvious that you should be rooting against him. Mm-hmm. It, it's not a matter of favoritism or 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 not, but hey, whatever, man. Uh, <laughs> in terms of characters that I like. You know who I do find uh, some appreciation for? Probably. I think, no. I was going to say Bright for some odd reason. Okay. Nice, man. Yeah, I don't know why, but there's just something about the dude that uh, that I appreciate. You know? He's, He's a leader that you would follow? Uh, I guess so. I mean... I don't think he's a classic hero either cuz he he's he's not a dude who's who's uns, unsure of himself or anything like that but at the same time he's not I don't know. I guess there's a lot about him that's imperfect, you know? Yeah. Like so and, far he's not the kind of captain that I mean he's that's not even his rank because he got promoted because the actual captain died earlier. Yeah. 
um, I just call him captain because he's, you know, leading the ship. But yeah. he's at that point where even though he's the leader, like he doesn't naturally command everybody's respect. I was going to say, it almost feels like he's a dude who's failing upward. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I mean, it, that, the, the thing about that statement is it makes it sound like he's incompetent, which he's not. But I don't think he's a company man either in the sense that he's not an ass kisser. He's he's just a dude who's just trying to do his job and he just happens to put him in charge, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I guess the thing about him that I enjoy is the fact that he isn't this stereotypical hero kind of guy. He's not know? a perfect leader. Yeah. Uh, there was a scene in the previous book where... Uh, I want to say he was on an elevator or something, and he was trying to talk to this girl. Sailor. Yeah, and he was just kind of fumbling through the conversation. He wasn't suave. He wasn't, uh, you know, overly confident. If anything, you could tell he was, or he wasn't suave, and he wasn't like that right amount of confidence. If anything, you could tell he was playing at being overly confident. You know, <laughs> yeah, he was trying to puff up his chest, but. It just made him seem kind of goofy, you know? Yeah, that's yeah. a good way of putting it. And and the thing about it is he doesn't really play a huge part in this second book. I don't feel like we saw him too much in the second book. Just barking uh, orders and commands yeah, right there. Exactly. That scene with yeah. him saying, you know, him and Amuro when they see off his mom. Yeah. The scene where early on when he slaps Amuro. <laughs> yeah. That, that was kind of a... That's definitely a memorable scene. I mean, the thing that always gets me is after he slaps Amro uh, the second time, I think, Amro's like, even my dad never hit me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I guess there's something about the fact that he's not such a bright, shining star that makes me like him, you know? Mm-hmm. Even though his name is Bright? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what about you? Is there, are there any characters that you're about? Kai is definitely one of my favorite characters. He just amuses me a lot. Uh, he, he's got a sardonic attitude. He sometimes comes off as a natural coward, but he's got this sense of self-preservation, so he somehow manages to stay alive. And even though he's like that, even though he's the one who's always muttering and stuff, he also seems more willing to follow orders and go into battle, you know, compared to Amuro, who has that whole seen not only in this book but in the previous volume as well where he didn't want to go out into the gundam and then there's just like comedic bits too like some of the facial expressions that yaz draws on kai are are pretty funny like there's that one scene when uh bright sends kai and sayla to go fetch amro from the refugee camp when he's seeing his mom and kai is the one who's driving the the armored vehicle and he's sitting down there and he's like okay uh where's my navigator let's hurry up and get on with this and then Sailor pops in and you know she's she's the one who's like crazy competent and super confident in everything she does like there's mm-hmm. like a sense of mystery about her up to this point where you just know that whatever she does she's she usually is probably going to be pretty good at it and then when he sees her get into the seat next to him his eyes literally bug out and it's like the cartooniest moment in the entire book yeah <laughs> that yeah it was just something that made me laugh yeah so I, yeah i definitely enjoy him and yeah sailor mass is 
one of my other favorite characters just because of yeah just how she carries herself yeah like both both Sela and mirai you know the woman who who pilots the white base mm-hmm. she's at the helm like they both seem to have interesting backstories yeah like, you don't really get too much of that uh in in volume two but there's that one scene where uh when white base is undergoing repairs and they're just sunbathing or just lounging in the sun mm-hmm. and they're talking a little bit and and uh, just through little bits of dialogue, you you hear that uh, Mirai is part of this like really powerful family of some sort. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I'm, it's interesting that we both chose supporting characters, you know, mm-hmm. as opposed to Char or Amaro. Um. I do think Char is extremely fascinating he's mm-hmm. but again like he's not my favorite in the sense that i feel a sense of endearment towards him mm-hmm. but he's fascinating because he's so compelling like in some ways i would i would probably say he's more compelling of a character to me than amuro is but i i definitely don't view him as like a cool guy that i want to emulate or anything like that yeah he's just fascinating because He's so he's he's such a charming psychopath is what it is. Well, I mean the interesting thing is in light of what we know about psychopaths now, it does feel like that's probably true to true to type. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Like they were always talking about how Ted Bundy was like known for being a charming, charming. affable person. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And I don't think that when they were originally creating the story that they viewed Shar as a psychopath necessarily. I think they, I would guess they probably just viewed him as someone with the complex set of motivations, mm-hmm. which, which I still think is true. Yeah. But I think the way that I look at him, I, I just can't help but think that he's a psychopath. <laughs> yeah. I was also going to say like, now that I think about it, I do I do think I like Frau a little bit too. Mm-hmm. There's just something wholesome about her. She got that girl next door aura. Yeah. She just seems like a cool person, I guess. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Like I don't I don't think it's any more complex than that. She just seems like a decent human being and a cool person in a world of just jerks. Somewhat messed up people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Totally, man. <laughs> yeah. So there we go. You got any other thoughts or questions? Uh, nope. That's about it. Yeah. Let's. Um, you want to drop? Uh, uh, you want to drop what we're gonna talk about next week? Sure. So next week we're gonna talk about Mouse by Art Spiegelman. So mm-hmm. very classic, legendary book. If all goes well, Shanus, our buddy Alexander Shanus, will join us. So, Shanice, if you're listening to this episode, you better hold up to your bargain, man, to join us on our episode. <laughs> Calling you out, Shanice. Don't flake out on us. Can you take me higher? <laughs> I don't know what that Creed song has to do with Shanice. I just it just came to me. <laughs> yeah, I was I was wondering the same thing. I, I was amused by it, but I was also scratching my head. <laughs>
yeah, if anyone has any uh, questions or comments that they want to make about Gundam The Origins Volume 2, please feel free to email us at betweenthegutterspodcast at gmail.com or go ahead and follow us. Please follow us on our Instagram uh, at Between the Gutters. Um, you know, DM us and uh, we'd love to hear from you guys. Or heck, tweet at us. All of the interactions. Mm-hmm. We're, we're about it. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. This is Between the Gutters, signing off. Peace out. Bye, guys. Hey, Albert. Yeah. What do you think of the Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness trailer? Um, I think, I think I'm in, I'm in on the idea of it being horror adjacent. Uh, I think it's a direction that we've yet to see in, in, in these marvel films uh i i do remember them trying to do something similar with uh the new mutants movie but that was i assume it was trash but i feel like i didn't watch it confirmation that it's trash just from (laughs) uh the lack of attention that it got but that being said um yeah like i i think there's definitely a lot of room for all of these different movies to explore their own avenues and the idea that you know they want to use dr strange to tell a horror type story i'm about that i, I think that's cool but in terms of all the fan servicey elements i'm not into that not as into that as your run-of-the-mill fanboy so you weren't super pumped up when you heard patrick stewart's voice i wasn't uh yeah, why not, whatever, man. man. Well, why why do you hate Jean-Luc Picard? I don't know. Why do I hate Santa? Why do I hate children? <laughs> I, I can't say. <laughs> I just do. They were uh, born. They 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 get in my way when I walk places, <laughs> and that's enough. <laughs> so are you telling me that you don't want to see Tom Cruise as an alternate Iron Man? Uh... Here's here's the thing. I think on the surface it all sounds very silly to me. And there's something about that idea of oh hey this is Tom Cruise as as Ultimate Iron Man. I, I want to say it's it comes from did it come from this thing where years ago they were trying to do an Iron Man movie and they wanted Tom Cruise to be Iron Man. Uh, that could be it, but I, I really don't know. I don't pay that close attention to the MCU minutia. I I feel like that's... Because I remember, like, maybe in the Wizard days, or, like, maybe even before that, oh, there like was... like a fan casting kind of thing? I don't know if it was a fan casting thing. I think it might have been, like, in the rumor mill, like, you know, pre-development or something like that, where they were oh, talking I about it. I, I could be remembering it wrong, or just pulling it out of my butt, but... 
it's it just feels like I don't know. I, I I even though we've had a couple of movies now where the multiverse is established as a thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in some instances it worked, but I feel like the more that they go to that well, the less I'm inclined to be into it. Yeah. I'm kind of multiversed out at this point. Mm-hmm. I think no way home was, was, was kind of the start of that fracture. And <clears throat> the idea that we're going to get all these different multiversal versions of characters as a way to like introduce other uh, Marvel characters into the fold. Uh, I mean, we talked about this before and we always thought that that was not a way that we wanted it to go. And I stand by that. Same here. And I, I'm hard pressed to believe that the movie is going to be so good that it's going to convince me that that was the right direction that it was going to go in. I'm not going to say that it's impossible. Like I've I've seen movies where you know what Avengers Endgame uh I was hoping time travel wasn't going to be a thing, but they did it and it worked. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not completely against the idea of using the multiverse as the vehicle that introduces mutants and the fantastic four or whatever yeah but it's an uphill battle like they're really gonna have to convince me it's it's gonna take more than just hearing patrick stewart's voice to make me go yeah this was what i wanted (laughs) you know so if you see tom cruise you're not gonna jump up in your chair no i'm not and if anything i'm gonna spill my drink on the guy sitting in front of me Just to make a point. <laughs> um, yeah, man. Like, I, I don't know. Uh, what if they got... And this is something that Eric texted me, and I thought it was great. But he said, what if they what if they get Jackie Chan as an alternate version of Shang-Chi? <laughs> <laughs> uh, that... <laughs> would be interesting i would want to see how that plays out i'd just be like okay like at this point it's not even about whether it makes sense in the movie or not i'm just fascinated by the the how bizarre they're willing to get with it you know (laughs) what's the most bizarre alternate version of a character you could imagine an actor playing oh man the most bizarre alternate version of a character Oh man, that is that's a tough question to answer, dude. It is, man. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it, I guess it would have to be something like you might have to get someone like Christopher Walken to play like Captain America or something, you know? <laughs> someone who's just uncharacteristically quirky to 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 portray mr all-american football hero kind of guy (laughs) that would probably be that would probably be the most interesting way to go right yeah yeah he does have a a unique face yeah 
or he's also pretty old. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so he he absolutely doesn't fit the conception the that we have of Captain America. Yeah. And he'd just be he'd just be uh he'd show up and he'd just kind of give weird one-liners and that would be the extent of his participation. Nice. I like yeah. that. I like that. <laughs> what about you? You think that uh you got any feelings or thoughts on the multiverse of madness? No. Not nothing that's too far off from what you were saying. I mean, I I'm with you, man. Like I I totally agree with what you were saying in terms of just being tired of the multiversal junk that we've been getting a lot of lately. Yeah. And I'm not I'm not the kind of fanboy that gets hyped up by by the novelty of you know, either familiar actors or just unexpected actors playing characters that um, you know, are alternate versions of ones that we already know about. So yeah. I, I'm I'm not going to be jumping out of my seat if we see Tom Cruise as Tony Stark or or anything like that. Yeah. Uh, if anything, I'm more interested in the fact that we're going to get Shuma Goris. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah. yeah, that, I feel more hyped about that than any of the other uh, potential candidates for the Illuminati that we're going to get. Yeah. I, uh, what was I going to say? I, what, were, what did you say earlier? Uh, prior to Shuma Goris. Then you said uh, about the Illuminati. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I was gonna say. I was gonna say it, it feels like in terms of the Marvel movies, we've entered, we've entered kind of the '90s phase of the Marvel movies. Uh, what I mean by that is where comics were in the '90s, or the direction that they were headed in in the '90s. It feels like the movies are kind of in that place right now a place of bloated excess yeah yeah exactly like, whereas in the, the 90s comics got so high on themselves that they just started eating themselves up yeah and it just became about gimmicks and uh a, a fan service basically and and it feels like that first the first few phases of the marvel movies they were still establishing their universe and now that they've gotten to this place where they're like okay we've we've given them we've established our universe yeah we've established our 10 years of uh uh movies with with uh these characters Mm -hmm. well now we just gotta swing for the fences and just try everything right (laughs) yeah how many how crazy are we allowed to get with these ideas and it wouldn't surprise me if we start seeing things like Spider-Man was actually cloned from Hitler's sex midgets, <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, stuff like that, you know? Like, maybe maybe we're not in the place in the 90s where everything decided to go dark yet, but we're, we're, we're on a trajectory, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I hear that. 